Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is Paula, the CEO of KFC in the UK and Ireland. She's hugely driven, super intelligent and so passionate. Paula moved from Audit to FMCG, spent time at Innocent, and has now spent over 10 years at KFC. KFC has one of the most powerful cultures I've ever come across, and ultimately Paula sees her job as only two things, people and strategy. In this episode, Paula and I will speak about how she learned so much when Innocent's sales fell off a cliff after years of rapid growth. How she felt and what she did when KFC had to shut 700 restaurants overnight because they ran out of chicken and how she thinks about people, culture and leadership. Paula, Yum Brands, the owner of KFC, is so famous for its culture and talent. But before we deep dive into these topics, I would love to hear where you were born. Well, Timo, thank you for having me on this because it's a fabulous, you know, opportunity. So uh, great to speak to you. I was born in London. In uh, so there's sometimes I think not that many Londoners in London. I, I don't live in London anymore, but I was born in Queen Charlotte's Hospital in London. So um, it's something I wear close to my heart as a proud Londoner, definitely. I know that place really well. <laughs> a West London haunt, yeah. <laughs> yes. And actually, my first son, our eldest son, uh, was born in the same hospital. And there was something always, I guess, cathartic or kind of nostalgic, I guess, you know, not that I remember about that. But um, yeah, really nice. And how was growing up like? I was lucky enough to have a fairly idyllic childhood in that respect. We lived in London till I was about seven. And then we moved to Hertfordshire, to Harpenden in, in Hertfordshire. And both my parents were professional parents, fully working. And I guess you could say uh, for me and my sister, that was just formative seeing, especially my generation. So, you know, growing up in the 80s, my mother being a, a professional working mom, that was unusual where we lived. Um, and I guess that set a really useful and compelling like role model for me. School came fairly easily. I made friends. I went to a fabulous girls school in St. Albans. Um, and so actually nothing, you know, almost like naught to 16 uh, came particularly difficult. I was an enthusiastic music player in, in many bands and orchestras and that kind of thing and I guess the toughest bit of school for me just growing up just to answer your question briefly was 16 to 18 I myself decided to go to boarding school thinking I'd like to experience almost that side of education and and private school I'd been at state school until that point um, and that boarding experience in those kind of formative years of 16 to 18 that was really hard. What made it hard? I think for most people, 16 to 18, you're really trying to find out who you are and work out who you are. Um, and I'd been at a girls' school, obviously, 11 to 15, 16. Essentially, I was at a boys' school. So there was like 660 boys <laughs> and 30 girls. 
that causes its own interesting dynamic. I was also things like head of house. So, you know, in a leadership role where you have no leadership experience and you're 16, you know, and you're trying to make sure that people don't take each other's stuff, for example, or whatever. Um, Really hard. But you learn some formative life lessons from those early leadership experiences. So, you know, I wouldn't change it, but I just remember feeling... I could never get away from it. That's the nature of boarding school. You couldn't get away. Um, and therefore, it's hard to regroup sometimes when you just need to regroup a bit. But anyway, all learning. No, it's a powerful point. And you then went to Cambridge. What did you study? I studied economics and I have always loved economics. I still do. I actually still try sometimes when I get the chance to read The Economist because it actually still reminds me of those days studying actually A-level economics And I knew I really wanted to study economics wherever I went. And then I was uh, fortunate enough in that, I guess I worked really hard too for it, but I really set my heart on going to Cambridge. As most people know, it does require high grades to get in. Um, But I honestly, I worked my socks off and 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 I got in. And those three years at Cambridge, I enjoyed immeasurably and um, have such a soft spot for that place. So. It is a beautiful place. I uh, studied at uh, Judge Business School for a while, and it's been really, really fun. Oh, that's good to know. Actually, just interestingly, I went to um, one of the girls' colleges, Newhall. It's not called Newhall anymore, actually. It's called um, Murray Edmonds College. But actually, what's funny is it's known for being one of the ugliest colleges in the whole of Cambridge. <laughs> so you've got this beautiful city and these beautiful buildings. And we're in this, uh, essentially, like I think it's 1950s dome. You have to see it to believe it at the top of the hill. So... Yeah, I, I love the fact that it's that kind of juxtaposition about that. But anyway, yeah, I love I love Newhall. Yeah, Judge, Judge Business School felt the same. Um, <laughs> you know, it's such a new building in the most beautiful surrounding, uh, full of smart people. But yeah, the, the building is not particularly nice. Um, and so you studied. What what did you learn about yourself? How how did you feel about the world back then before you took up your first job? I do remember, and it's only because actually at KFC, we've just laid on a talk about imposter syndrome. And I was trying to remember, like, when do I think imposter syndrome has been a thing for me? And I actually could really, suddenly this um, memory came back to me, which was one of the first lectures at Cambridge, where they said, you know, in in this room and people before you have been prime ministers and chancellors and leaders of business. And you can remember you were like 18 at this point. And I remember having this huge sense of, oh, my goodness. Like, I am here by mistake. Someone has let me in by mistake. (laughs) And I'm going to get found out very shortly. (laughs) Um, So it is interesting, isn't it, how that uh, does happen to you at different stages of life. Uh, Genuinely, you feel, I remember connecting with that feeling so much that I felt like a fraud being there. Anyway, long story short. But um, yeah, so three years later, I, I obviously graduated. And then I think it's really hard. And actually, if I project now to leaving people leaving university or, or having, you know, that starting qualification, it's really hard to get the next step, isn't it? I think it's really hard. And I spent a reasonable amount of time almost doing temporary work, contracting, bar work, you name it, trying to find something that I knew would really float my boat, so to speak. And it was almost impossible. And so in the end, I, I reverted to type, I guess, by getting onto some graduate programs and then selecting one of those graduate programs, which was the Ernst & Young Accountancy Program. And I guess this is where the two sides of my personality blend, because it was that pragmatic side of me of like, I need to get a job. 
the accountancy one offers a qualification, you know, the brand management one at Unilever didn't. And then the Ernst Young one was in London. I thought it was way more fun to be in London than to be in Surrey. So <laughs> um, point, yeah. you know, long story short. So I then studied to become an account, you know, becoming an accountant, a chartered accountant. And meanwhile, working as an auditor. And I have to say, you know, I realized quite quickly audit wasn't where my passion was and actually wanted to quit at various points. But there was a kind of there's a a dogged kind of determination in me. Just once I've started something, I'm going to see it through. So I saw that through and then left very quickly. Actually, went to Diageo, Guinness UDV in those days just for a year and then became Diageo. So all the spirits brands, just because I've always had a connection with food and drink. And now you see this in my career and and brands. And Diageo is known for, you know, the Diageo way of brand building and is a phenomenal brand-based company so was there for about three or four years how were the cultures differently oh from Ernst and Young it's just Mm -hmm. um those professional services firms are amazing and I would still advocate for them in terms of the learnings that you get the range of clients you get to work on etc and and actually how colleagues or teams within the organization treat each other because I think in a way even if you're the top most senior partner once upon a time you were probably that first junior trainee there's a mutual respect, just understanding that people are at different parts of their career because of, I guess, time and, you know, when, when they were born and all that. There's a different, that's slightly different to when you work in industry where people have got, you know, much more portfolio careers and come at roles for a different background and different perspectives. I did notice that difference. But Diageo was a phenomenally fun place. Obviously, if you're in the, in the industry of making alcoholic drinks you can imagine that partying is a big part of well especially was in those days it was almost pre-corporate social responsibility it was it was a very fun place to work i just really briefly want to pick up on one small point you made um when you said every boss you know started as a junior employee at some point so therefore they have empathy and so on it was very different for me being in banking and the sentence everyone always said was the higher the monkey climbs the more ass you see apologies for that um But it really felt like a lot of people who made it um, in a very difficult environment where people worked 100 hours in professional services, they then really made everyone else feel bad once they made it. And it brought the worst out of a few people. Some of the people I worked with were amazing and inspiring bosses. But it just uh, yeah, made me smile the way you described it because it sounded much more positive than some of the stuff I, I experienced. Yeah. And your experience rings true about what friends and colleagues have said. My experience, and I think Ernst and Young, and I almost deliberately chose them for this reason, was much better at its, call it pastoral counselling kind of care of its people. And honestly, the experience was quite a nurturing one. Yes, you had to work hard. And yes, it's timesheet driven. And yes, you know, people at the top expect huge amounts of you putting in the long hours, which you do. But actually, um, I whether it's because I really uh, bonded with my, you know, you call it your start group, they became like my second university crowd of friends. So in a way, it was a nurturing environment. We had a lot of fun. But you're right, hard yards and hard graft went alongside it. But it's funny when you look back in time with rosy tinted glasses, you, well, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> there are 20 things that are so positive about my time in investment banking. So that's just one of the few aspects. And then how did you progress? So you went from auditing to... Yeah, to a finance role, a couple of finance roles at Diageo. Yeah, I eventually kind of, um, I got frustrated with that. And then I left and I went to GlaxoSmithKline, only in drinks. So it was drinks again. So, that, you know, a recruitment consultant, I remember like talking to me about it and it seemed to make sense with the skills I had. I was working on Ribena, LucasAid, Horlicks. 
But I just remember after two years, I was so bored at GSK. It's such a fabulous company, but because essentially their business is pharmaceuticals, the, the timescales of everything was so slow compared to everything I was used to from a more of an FMCG background. They had this FMCG drinks business, but really it wasn't their mainstay. So it, more of a sense of boredom um, when Innocent came calling and Innocent Smoothies, obviously, especially at that time, being the absolute darling of the drinks industry, I was like, okay, this is fate. This is fate telling me that I have to go and join Innocent and I have to find out what, what it is that's amazing that they're doing. And I actually joined as their uh, UK financial controller, not really, not wanting that role particularly, but knowing that when you join an entrepreneurial company and there's not that many employees, you're essentially doing everything. And and quite quickly, I was able to show them and, and that we needed really commercial finance skills. You don't need me to be your financial controller. We need commercial finance. And actually, that's my background. And so I basically set up their commercial finance team from scratch. And that's one of the proudest you know, legacies that I have. And alongside my four years at Innocent, you just learn... I would say this, you you learn, I had learned the rules all the way through my career from these big corporate companies, but at Innocent, I learned how to break them. And I think that's been the most powerful combination. I would advocate for anyone in their career, please work at big companies and please work at small startups, because in a way, it gives you the best of both, I think. And Innocent was, you know, everything from doing the strategy to fixing the coffee machine, frankly. You you literally did everything <laughs> in between. <laughs> Sounds very familiar um, to anyone working at Gusto. And how big was Innocent back then? And obviously, I mean, the most iconic food and drinks brand in the UK back then. When Which year did you join? Around 2007. So it was we were still in the original um, industrial shed off, off the Goldhawk Road, maybe 120-ish employees growing. My first six months, all I did was recruit fellow people. Um, we couldn't, to use this expression, we couldn't lay down the train tracks as fast as the train was coming on through. It was unbelievable, the growth. Um, like nothing I had ever experienced. It was basically recruiting people. My, my whole job was interviewing and recruiting. And then if you think, so I think I joined about 2007, 2009, smoothie sales fell off a cliff. And again, I'd never experienced, you know, the volatility when I'd worked on these big established brands, Guinness and Bailey's and um, Ribena and Horlicks, you know, if you, if they moved by 1% either way, it was kind of interesting. You know, I think we lost about a third off the top line in 2009 from, from memory, or at least wow. in the UK as people stopped or couldn't afford to a bit like their disposable coffee they weren't really buying their 250 mil smoothie on the way to work in the same way that they were and that was my first experience of almost like recession downturns stress everything that comes alongside that is is very scary and very real and especially as you will appreciate when you're in an entrepreneurial business it's like okay can we hang on to everyone can we keep jobs going can we actually afford to pay people this month that that was again interesting and learning but yeah Wow, really fascinating. So you you worked in this highly entrepreneurial culture that's entirely focused on growing, interviewing all the time. All of a sudden, the music stops, the growth is gone. Talk me through the cultural implications of all of a sudden, for the first time ever, in a company that's so spoiled with growth, I guess, focusing on cost and hiring freeze and so on. How, how did this culturally play out? It was just quite shocking because if you've, if you've grown in a hockey stick J curve kind of way. And there's this jolt, like you say, you just, you haven't forecast it, obviously you haven't expected it. And then you're rapidly trying to forecast where is the bottom of the, the slide or the pit. And that's crystal ball gazing, right? And it's hard to say how low is this going to go? And every time you're doing a revision of a forecast, especially because my background and I was in a finance role is quite shocking to people. 
being even the bearer of bad news um, and then and then watching the fallout of that. And then you're right, the cultural norms of the organization. It was really tough. I think that's when Innocent grew up a lot. And it's the formative years, right? You know, um, as entrepreneurial companies grow and they you know, can be like toddlers and then they can be like slightly older children and then young teenagers. It really is interesting because I think it's exactly the same as human life. And I can't remember which year coincided, but I was there around when, when Innocent had its like 11th birthday, 12th birthday. And it's, it's those formative years and you need that experience to make you then the stronger young adult that you become. And, and look at Innocent now. It's, you know, again, it's still a huge success story and it's learned from those experiences. So that was all it was, is growing pains and learning um, and development. But definitely that was the first time something bad had happened, materially bad. And everyone got more resilient, but but I don't think the resilience was there to begin with. Which year did Coke then buy the company? At the end of 2012, um, Coca, the Coca-Cola deal went through. I hope my timings are on. Someone's going to come back with factual, like pull you off by a year or so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so about then. So you can see it had picked back up and lots of other things had come on through. You know, what, what we used to refer to as the take-home business. So all the supermarket business had, had taken off and, and, and. But, but that original downturn was good for the company in that it taught, taught everyone you know, a lot of a lot of important lessons about resilience and, you know, the rigidity or not of the company. But um, yeah, it went on to grow. And I, I know Douglas and the team since have just done a stunning job. So. And I guess culturally, again, like quirky challenger brand, really famous for, you know, quirky brand ideas, stunts, campaigns, and then bought by Coke, one of the most established brands in the world. That must have been a shock to the system for certain employees. Well, so I think there was a nervousness. And to be fair, I, I almost left as the deal was going through. So that for me actually was naturally pointing to the end of an era, an era that I had known without the Coke ownership. But to be credit to Coke, I think there's been so many famous case studies of businesses buying smaller entrepreneurial businesses that haven't worked out, you know, whether it's the green and blacks or the body shops or, you know, there's lots of, you know, Harvard Business School case studies on what not to do. But to be fair to Coke, they just said, we are going to leave you well alone. Do what you do because you're fabulous at doing it. And we're here is the, you know, whatever you need, resources, you know, expertise, Uh, consumer insight, you know, there's all, there's recourse to all of this stuff. But in, but I, all I can speak to is my experience at that time was I thought they did a fabulous job of leaving Innocent Well alone because there had been so many famous case studies of don't absorb it into the mothership. Um, so I would say kudos to Coke in that respect too. And why did you then decide to leave? So at that point, I was about four years in and I'd had our first child. We were living in Surrey. So I'd kind of gone back on my, you know, Unilever Surrey is the... The, not the place to live um and, and life changes you know um married we were having our first child I had our first child and then for about six months I was commuting all the way back to Hammersmith and in an instant had moved to Labrook Grove mm. and and just life it wasn't a good blend for me I was over four hours in a car not seeing a what, five month old baby was not a good blend so when KFC came knocking it was well to begin with I was just slightly incredulous and curious as to what they were talking about because they were like talking to me about supply we would like you to come and like interview as a supply chain director and I was like you do realize I work in finance right and it's just one of those things that the more I met the people of which one of them was Misty actually I only met about three people I was just convinced because these just seemed like fabulous and talented positive people I could just see the scale of what of what could be 
Whereas at Innocent, I'd, I'd reached, you know, one of the most senior levels. There was nowhere really else to go as well. And I'd had that experience for about three or four years. So I remember Misty vividly saying to me, actually, Paula, your CV, you know, you, you move around. I'm going to say it informally, like she said, you jump around every two or three years, you're getting bored, you can see it. And actually in your 30s, Paula, really think about this because you don't want to jump around. I want you to mentally be signing yourself up for, you know, at least seven years. And, and this year, this summer, summer 2021 will be my 10th year. And KFC, my journey with Yum has just been nothing short of, you know, I'm never bored. <laughs> I've had a lot of, you know, different opportunities and there's always something to fix, improve, you know, um, lap your own results, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how that all came to be, which is I met these three people. I didn't even meet the team. I didn't even go see the office, which was a good thing because we were in the world's ugliest office. Um, <laughs> and I joined, you know, and it was a better life balance because based in working in Surrey and I live in Surrey as well. So that that helped as well. And just really briefly, so Misty used to be chief people officer at uh, KFC globally. And uh, she sits on the Gusto board today and is one of the most passionate people about people and culture. Uh, and I've learned a ton from her. Um, and I think that's how you and I met Paula. And just talk me through a bit more about the secret sauce. So every time I meet KFC people or young people, they seem incredibly passionate, incredibly intelligent, incredibly driven. And if I'm being like completely honest, I wouldn't expect it. And if I look at, sorry for the comparison, but if I look at Burger King or McDonald's, I don't get the same passion and intelligence clusters. So why, why is KFC so special? How have they fostered that culture? I do think it's one of our greatest strengths, like that obviously we're, we're famous for the secret recipe. And I, I always think that maybe this is, you know, the 12th secret ingredient and we do need to get that out more. And then we have a famous phrase internally, you know, that we're really a, a people company that just happens to sell chicken and chips. So people, talent, development, relationships, culture is literally the heart and guts and epicenter of all things KFC. And I would say yum. Um, and that's certainly my experience over 10 years. And you know, the recruitment process to find people that share those kind of common values and then they're nurtured internally over your career and your time with the brands or with the company. It's just what we all do for each other, I guess. So it feeds off each other and that kind of positive outlook of um, belief in all people. I, I don't know whether it's, you know, David Novak's influence from inception through to just something that's also important to us that we keep generating it. It's special and it's natural and it's authentic and I don't know, it just makes it a thoroughly pleasant environment to work in. You forget some of the ineffective behaviors that happen at other organizations. And it's only actually now when I interview someone that I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah, I've forgotten how, how bad those things can be. <laughs> <laughs> But there's something also awesome as the leader. And I would say this, which is, I hope that I create, help to create with the leadership team, you know, environment that people want to work in and, it's, and that they can flourish in. And this is where I just think it's sound business sense too, because If they're free from fear and they can do their best work and be creative and et cetera, et cetera, then the business wins too. You know, it's a completely the same point. The business flourishes and they flourish. And, and actually the business won't flourish as much as it potentially can if they can't flourish. So it's really personally important to me and, it, and it's an important business point too. I'm so impressed by David Novak. He um, he wrote this book, Taking People With You. And um, I've probably given it to 50 people over time. I've, I've read it myself four times. David ended up investing into Gusto. And he, he obviously was the CEO of Yum Brands for a long time and took it to a huge, huge global success. Um, so, so a lot of what you describe, I feel like I know quite well, despite never having 
um, worked at uh, KFC or Yum. And how do you how do you think about the translation mechanisms of culture? So it's really easy to talk to you, to Misty, to David, and and to get really inspired. But I guess you you guys have thousands and thousands of employees. So how do you translate that culture into every piece of the process? Mm, that's a really good question. There's three values that we use quite you know informally and in speech that I would say come through to this point so it's you've got to have the smarts your point that actually and thank you for the compliment that people you talk to at the organization you find smart so smart you've got to be you've got to have heart um, and you've got to be courageous so we talk about smart heart and courage and you know and those qualities are applicable no matter who you're talking to as a friend and colleague they would be relevant from you know David Novak Greg Creed now David Gibbs through to you know, anyone in our organization, anyone, whether in a restaurant, whether they're, you know, running a reception desk, whatever, it would be relevant. Are, are you approaching your role, your piece of yum, as we used to say, with smart, heart and courage? Those three adjectives are really, you know, useful to kind of connect with people. And then more behind the scenes, you know, um, character development, really helping people understand their behavior and their character and which parts, and I use this word a lot, are useful to them. What are useful behaviors that you demonstrate? And which are behaviors that you demonstrate that, that aren't that useful, that you could drop happily and they're holding you back. We have all sorts of a tool, well, a, a predominant tool called Heart Styles, actually, behind the scenes that we've bought actually the, the, the actual entrepreneurial startup business, the founders of Heart Styles, now actually acquired by Yum. Um, but that character development, and actually, to be fair, you could use any tool at the end of the day, is profound. Yum invests a lot in people understanding themselves and their effective behaviors and their non-effective behaviors. And, and I think that's helped me over 10 years speaking from experience you know I would say the 43 year old Paula is <laughs> so much better rounded leader for all of that than the 33 year old Paula turned up and so Paula if you and I were in a character development session <laughs> what are the the useful behaviors you have demonstrated over time and which ones did you have to shed over time it's all color-coded you'll love this um so the <laughs> ones I naturally have are achievement orientation transforming you know reasonably reliable uh, those are all good you know what we would call blue behaviors on on the red side that are good behaviors are things like uh, relating to people you've observed that already that would that would stand to whether I'm talking to someone in a restaurant or you know or David himself high on coaching high on relating high on developing so people orientated skills but the ones I really had to shed uh, mine aren't actually in the fear quadrant so I'd I I thank my parents maybe for this or I haven't grown up with a lot of fear, but what the ones that I have developed over the years and actually as a function, sometimes of a lot of people who come from corporate backgrounds and, and, and is striving, which is almost a form of call it, this is ugly words. So it's sharing, you know, it's, it's like self-promotion. It's coming across that really actually what you're doing is working so hard. You're striving so hard um, because you want to look good or you want to be seen to be successful or seen to achieve. And, and those striving behaviors, which can actually be some of those other great attributes we talked about, misdirected, if that makes sense. You could say, actually, oh, my God, that's not my intention. What I'm intending is to be achievement orientated or transforming. But it's landing for other people that you're striving. And, and so that's what you learn to try and adjust is even if your intention is good and people typically have good intentions, it's not landing that way for others. Um, yeah, I'm uh, really familiar with um, strengths in overdrive and me having good intentions, but probably behaviors coming across in a, in a bad way. And, and one has to make the unconscious conscious and, and really intentionally work on this, I think. So um, thank you for so um, openly describing that transformation. I find it hugely fascinating. And I think 
culture is completely misunderstood because it's difficult to put metrics around culture. And you probably see the power compound over many years. And it, it kind of has first order and second order consequences. So if you, if you change something today, then it has an immediate benefit, but it might have a really negative consequence over the time frame of five years. But since the feedback loop is so slow, you don't really kind of understand why the culture or the, the, the shift in culture has undermined, you know, the opportunity to grow faster or be more profitable. Have you ever kind of, I, I guess, have you ever thought about putting metrics account culture, measuring culture? I've never been able to really achieve that. We, well, we definitely do. And Timo, you're always an inspiration for measuring anything for me. Just <laughs> we try really hard, yeah. Um, we have a, a survey like most companies do. We call it KFC Voice. And I actually do find it useful because it's almost no matter what the flaws of the survey and no matter like, you know, the incidents, as in how often you're running it or whatever, you know, you can still directionally see if on certain metrics within that certain questions you're trending up or trending down. And that's useful. You know, how engaged, happy, satisfied, et cetera, would they recommend the company, you know, proud of the work they do? All of those kind of questions to me are useful. And so I don't get hung up by the minutiae, although obviously the verbatims are useful, but the general trend, you know, if my overall score for the overall company, people like 7.9, and then it's moving to 8.1, I know we're doing something something right mm. over a year or two years. We've recently done another one around diversity, um, equality and inclusiveness or equity and inclusiveness. And again, it's been really useful to see, you know, different pockets of people as to actually, actually we do really well, for example, on inclusiveness, but we could be a more diverse organization, et cetera, et cetera. And what do people feel within that? Are there differences by age, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say measure and let it guide what you do. Don't be like completely hung up on it as a, because there's art and science. And that's, I think the point you were making, it's not just science, but don't let that shy away from measuring something. Is that helpful? <laughs> I think that's a really powerful point. And we, on a monthly basis, measure um, engagement. And as you said, it's really important to understand, you know, is, is an area falling off a, a cliff? Do you have to zoom in on that area and, and understand what's going on? And then normally there's a really simple reason for that. So it's powerful. Uh, and then, as you said, it's it's a lot of art at the same time. And I guess the other thing I'm really fascinated by is, and, and is probably linked to the culture, but is how long people are staying at uh, KFC and Yum. In today's world, everyone is, uh, you know, addicted to dopamine. People are changing every two years. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's borderline ridiculous. How do people on average stay so long at KFC and Yum? No, honestly, Timo, you sound like me from when I first joined and people, when they introduce themselves, typically say like how long they've been at Yum and, and you know, it'd be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I actually, what was going through my mind was what is wrong with these people? This is insane. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with them, why they never move companies. Um, and also all I could think about was this sound like prison sentences type durations. <laughs> what, 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 what? <laughs> and, and now I'm here at 10 years. I never wake up and feel like net net I'd rather work anywhere else. I enjoy my job. There's intellectual stretch. There's things to be done. It's very rewarding. I'm empowered. I can see the results, the, the results of things we change. I love the people I work with. And, and you build that over time. I think there's something interesting about the complexity of our business that actually 
the years of experience that you get over time become invaluable to you. So in a way, and actually we put science to this because I know you'll love a bit of science. We actually could prove in maths that an RGM, a store manager, a restaurant general manager, was their most effective at four years plus. That almost the, the amount they had therefore understood about their restaurant assimilated, built the team, et cetera, et cetera, um, they, would, they would get better results out of their restaurant for almost four years of continuity in it. Wow, I love that. Um, I guess that's then just magnified as a leader ultimately, which is, you know, and I've done many roles. I don't want people to think that, okay, she's done 10 years in the same thing, but I, I joined a supply chain director. I then moved to become chief development officer. After a year or so, I joined CFO. I became the joint CFO and development director for about another two years. I did a year where I didn't have the development responsibility, but I was the CFO and the chief marketing officer for a year. And then long story short, off the back of that in 2017, I got made the general manager. So, you know, it's it's those five experiences that ladder up to having a really decent understanding of the business. And our business, I always think of it in three, in three balls, so to speak. So there's the brand. And most people who come from an FMCG background understand brands really quite well. But the second ball or second bubble is operations, running restaurants, not many businesses. You'll have a supply chain, but you won't actually run outlets and premises in the same way. And, and honestly, that is so complicated in a different way. And then the third bubble that, um, again, you might be running restaurants, but you won't have this one is our business model, which is franchisor, franchisee, that relationship. And so you can see intellectually or you know, improving something, there's always something across brand, operations, running restaurants, and then the business model that needs working on or improving. And Sometimes I just think, my goodness, what was I busy doing in FMCG? <laughs> um, you know, if you're just running a restaurant, you know, you don't have franchisees, franchisor relationships as well. Like, what are you busy doing? But it's it's the combination of all three that is powerful, I think. And I just want to highlight the, the one point you made earlier from a philosophy point. I think you and I are, are very similar on a principle level in the sense that we both believe in creating really powerful experiences for people so that they grow and they feel like they develop fast, but obviously it's beneficial for the company. And it's probably more important to look for skill and behavior rather than, you know, what have they actually done before. And so what we found works really well at Gusto is to move people who've, uh, you know, done finance in the past to move them into product or to take somebody who runs people and move them into logistics um, or into other areas. And it's it's uh, been phenomenal because people get energized, they learn, they grow. Uh, it's great for culture. It's great for calibration across talent. So that sounds really similar to to KFC, I guess. And that's fabulous that you do that, because I think that's one of KFC's greatest strengths. And uh, we need to do more of it. So even hearing you say that reminds me, but you're right. I don't meet people at other organizations that are, that think so cross-functionally, and we always have. And, and that's amazing that you do that, Gaston. Well, to be honest, when, when I said it, I immediately thought we need to do so much more of that and uh, learn from you. <laughs> and talk to me about leadership. How do you think a leader leads? What is the definition? How do you see your job description? I don't actually often think about my job description. I'm not sure. I don't know if there is one written down. So that's interesting. I am quoted as saying, and I do say this, I think a CEO, MD, leader, it doesn't matter which leader, of, you know, in, in what, what your pool is, so to speak. But I think essentially you do two things and and, and that's people. And I'll say that one first and, and strategy. So I guess strategic direction. On the people front, that's every aspect of, you know, hiring the right talent, nurturing that talent, growing that talent, coaching that talent, motivating that talent, 
you know, tough love for that talent um, and getting that talent aligned and moving in the right direction together, not competing against each other against a common cause. And I guess that common cause is the strategy point. And strategy is not just a tell top down, like, this is what we're doing. Let's go here. You know, it's a co-creation of strategy from all the talented people that you've got in your organization. Um, and I always remember vividly talking about strategy to Greg Creed, one of our former CEOs, because, and I and I love this, which is he's like, Paula, you know, you, you just have to be about 80% right, as in your, your strategy, about 80% on the money will do. Don't keep finessing for 90, 95%, because honestly, just the, the cohesion or the alignment in itself will drive mm-hmm. progress. People mm-hmm. marching against a common cause will yield progress. Don't almost keep refining and waiting for the organization to go against that thing. So what I find is lots of overachieving smart people can critique strategy a lot. And at the end of the day, you could you should challenge yourself of like how useful is that? Because just use that one, 80% good enough is probably good enough. You know, the business results will will prove out or not, um, or will we'll make the point or not. Stop, don't do analysis paralysis kind of thing. Yeah, super powerful point. And just linking on this point, so people and strategy, what is it then that only Paula can do across people and strategy? Sometimes I think my 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 superpower or my skill is is almost like a conductor, an orchestra, I guess. I think I have a really decent blend of, well, IQ and EQ. So I guess it's kind of like knowing when this little conversation needs to happen, that needs to come in, bring this on through, hold that. That's, I mean, I'm conductor makes it sound I'm great, like, you know, air traffic control. No, <laughs> um, no, no I, I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a skill I have. And I think it's just navigating the organization in a, in a kind of cross, you know, the wonderful thing about being the person as the UK GM or in your role or whatever is I'm, I'm functionally agnostic. I actually don't give a monkeys, you know, like who it takes or what mm-hmm. it takes or where from or what, on what budget, like it's more just the business result that we're trying, the transformation that we're trying to drive for. And so that's, I think, the most useful role you play as the ultimate leader um, is pulling that together. There's no, there's no division in a way. You're just trying to get the results. How do you empower the team? And I guess, which decisions do you take? Which decisions does the team take? How do you create those conditions for the team to be a high performance team that's super engaged and really gets the best out of the team? It's funny. Um I often think I'm like really reasonable and then I have this I make myself chuckle because um I know all benevolent dictators probably think they're reasonable so I do I do think I'm relaxed <laughs> and then I'm totally not relaxed at all so here's what here things that the team know and that are really important to me I I expect people to deliver great work does that make sense so I have high expectations I start from a place of you need to be freaking brilliant at your job now within that I'm really strict or I have really strict framework for decision taking so People, I use a derivative of the rapid framework, whether it's, I forget whether it's Bain or BCG that came up with the rapid framework. And actually, I only take three letters out of rapid. I take R, I, and D. So I'm I'm clear with people who is the D, who is the decision taker? Does it need to be me? And actually, I think leaders where they put too much of the D with themselves is ridiculous because you're hamstringing a whole organization by taking too many decisions yourself. So I make it really clear if it's a D, you know, it's my CMO, Meg, you know, she's the D on this one, or my COO, Rob, he's the D. Then the other roles, the R is the recommender. So normally it's a project manager or somebody who's bringing forward all all the things they've heard to conclusion and giving a recommendation. That's fairly clear. And then what it makes really clear for everyone else, and this is where I see other organizations go wrong, is all their input, the I, their impetus, is just that. At the end of the day, it is just that. And, And actually, if I'm not the D, then I'm relegated my input to just that very informed one would hope after 10 years of experience input 
but it's input. So please take everything that you have heard in the round from the recommender, all these points of perspectives of input, and then the D makes the call. And I think that's liberating for people to understand who is going to take the D, that committees don't take D, that people take the D. Um, and they might take six weeks to make a decision or six days or six hours or whatever frame time frame that they want, you know, pertinent to the decision in hand. Um, but you don't get this kind of like veto vote thrown in or I have to come up with some weird um, recommendation, you know, uh, that's a that's a hybrid compromise of all these pieces of input I've heard. No, you don't. You're listening to all the input, all these very well-regarded thoughts from cross-functional leaders, but then take the D that you think in the round is the best D you can. That, that, so that's important to me. I think having some frameworks like that is how you are an empowering leader. And Timo, I've forgotten the beginning part of your questions. <laughs> Got so hung up. Oh, on I mean, that's, that's fantastic. The question was how to empower teams. And I think the clarity you create by having this framework for decision making and then also the clear expectation that you have very high standards is, is really fantastic for people. How do you then create psychological safety? Yeah, I don't. I haven't struggled with this one too much, but it's because I think if something's gone wrong, well, just what is the learning? I, you know, ask your curious questions and critiquing questions from a place of just trying to understand what what went wrong, so that that won't go wrong again. Or we can, you know, we can obviously more than sticking plaster solve for the thing that went wrong, but not from a blame. Just take the learnings and move on. Lots of things go wrong. Lots of things won't work first time. What is the learning? What didn't go quite right? Adjust and go again. And, and the only time I get frustrated is if we haven't banked the learning. If we're learning something identical for the second time, and, and Chris, my CFO, who's worked for me for a number of well, eight years, is always like, she almost is like a three strikes and out person. You know, at the point we're learning something for the second time and it's the identical point, then I'm starting to get frustrated. But only in that, you know, we should have taken that learning the first time. Um, but Carol Dweck, you know, growth mindset, we all have to practice it, but it, 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 I would say majority, it's in my DNA now. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a powerful point. I mean, one of my big principles is, is exactly the same. It's totally fine to make mistakes, but it's unacceptable not to learn from these. And I think dissecting your success as much as you dissect your failure is equally important because people only yeah. tend to focus on reflecting about why they failed, not about what makes them successful, which is actually really hard to articulate. And I feel like this is a great segue into the question around crisis management. I knew it was coming. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I have to. I have to ask, you know, you talked about building resilience in the early days of your CV. Um, and then one day, all of a sudden, stores ran out of chicken, 600, 700 restaurants had to shut all of a sudden. There was a huge initial shock, 30,000 employees. How did you feel in the moment you learned about this? When did this dawn upon you? How huge the implication is? I mean, it was 2018. So it just shows you that it's mm. a while ago now. It's 2018. We swapped a distributor of Valentine's Day. Unfortunately, it's tainted Valentine's Day for the rest of my life. But um, <laughs> Valentine's Day 2018, I was actually on holiday in Sweden. And, um, you know, we were, we were changing distrib distributor. Long story short is exactly what you said. I was getting calls from that first day. I want to say, you know, like midday or something I was getting calls on holiday and I was just like this isn't good this is really not good and I basically spent the majority of that day on the phone and we got flights home and came straight straight back to the 
So what you're trying to, in the early stage of a crisis, like literally the first 24 hours or first few days, you're not even aware it's a crisis. By that, I mean, it hasn't reached that stage. You're still trying to do a diagnostic on what is going wrong. You know, what, and, and at what levels have you got things going wrong at? Like, you know, systemic, technological, operational, how deep is the is the failure, so to speak? So I would say, you know, learning is just in those few days, get a really clear, as quick as you can, get sourced get close to the source of the problem and get really clear diagnostics on how many levels deep is this kind of problem. And in our example, in this example, it you know, it was really deep. And this is where people can, and this is, um, I think this is why CEOs and MDs find this useful to hear is people can underestimate how important their supply chain is. And you'll have heard the tropes, you know, your supply chain is the lifeblood of your business, but it literally is the lifeblood of your business. And, and on the body equivalent, you can't, you're not living, you will fall over if your blood is not pumping. And, and our, our supply chain is of such magnitude, you know, nearly a thousand restaurants, like you said, a thousand restaurants, think about it. Um, that moment that lifeblood isn't pumping, they're closing. And so by about day four, of course, they've run out of stock and they're closing. And, and watching your restaurants have to close is nothing short of heartbreaking because you spend your life not even wanting them to close for a couple of hours, to have your full system have to close its doors, to have it, you know, on national TV, because all that starts to break as, as journalists get wind of, oh my goodness, is something going on at KFC, et cetera, et cetera. You, you can't almost experience anything like it unless you go through something. It was horrendous, truly, truly horrendous for the organization and to be the leader. But I think this is where I think I know in myself, I'm a strong person. And I just was like, this is what it is. This is what it is. We are going to go through this. I am goddamn going to stay with this business through all my, with all my colleagues. And if we're going down, I mean, I'm going down with it and we're going to just, we're going to do our best to pull out of it, but there's no way I'm like abandoning ship or any of those. It felt like the, the Titanic KFC is an epic business. And it's like being a person that knows that the Titanic is going to go down before everyone else does because you you have the numbers and you have the insight and it's horrendous Timo, honestly yeah i i sense how difficult it must have been on a personal level but you did manage to turn it around and you actually created powerful brand equity on the back of it so how did you then turn it around and it just comes from grit and resilience and hard work and seizing opportunity and being the people and the team that you are and speaking from the heart and you know and all those wonderful comms that we put out and the one that we're most famous for you know that that FCK bucket and it comes from a place of genius you you know if you can if you can harness the whether it's the grit and the oyster or the, the the moments of brilliance that come out of these things because sometimes you need that rub to create you know to strike the match against or to uh, that, that it just creates people's absolute best work, which is why you try as a leader, sometimes they say like, you know, crisis like collaboration or, you know, to force the sense of this. I mean, my God, you would never force it in the sense of how real that was. But when those things come through, that is that is the team and their talent and the brilliance and the authenticity handling a crisis. And I think that's what consumers connected with, which is we put out comms saying, this isn't great. <laughs> you know, we've stuffed up or we'll be back when, you know, it's essentially, we're, we're coming back, you know, everything has to be bob on in terms of tonality, etc. But when you do that, your customers and your loyalists, they see what, you know, they see you speaking as the brand, which is the brand they know and love. And they're like, that is genius. You know, that piece of work was creative genius with the right tonality. And then, and then we've, you know, we've just kept building 
And you just take the learnings. And actually, the success we've had in 2020. So who would have known? You know, if you'd have told me that, Paula, those learnings that you learn as an organization, as a business, and as a leader yourself in 2018, it meant the silver lining was when a version of that happens in 2020, I was, you know, all of us were just like, well, we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing better than anyone else. <laughs> We know that we can close a thousand stores and we can open them again and we will do this faster, hopefully better, more considered than anyone else because we have this in our muscle memory. So I think maybe the learning is for crises, never underestimate the learning experience and when you're going to be able to use those skills again. <laughs> Yeah, completely. And to finish on a positive, I mean, KFC sales look extremely strong now, despite some of the few stores still not being open. And um, you, you clearly have hugely benefited from from that resilience building exercise, um, despite no doubt it being, you know, hugely tough. Also, if I think about you, and you having the desire to join boards, I mean, I would jump at the opportunity to hire or, or to try to convince you to join a board because you've you've seen this, right? You've seen mm. the crisis. You've built the resilience and the grid, as you said. You focused on the opportunity, no blame culture, speaking from the heart, coming up with this genius FCK bucket campaign, which I absolutely um, admired. And it's just not an experience most of us have have ever seen. So it's powerful to have that. Yeah. And I guess this is what I mean. And to be fair to our creative agencies, you know, mother, the, all the geniuses that came up with the artwork, if that makes sense. Like, so, you know, but um, I guess the experience, you, 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 this is why people say experience is experience in there. You can't manufacture it. You know, you've either had that experience or you haven't. And, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but the experience is valuable. And yeah, it just makes you the, the wiser, I guess. <laughs> You realize that things really can go wrong. I don't know if it makes you more cautious. I wouldn't say that, but it makes you know that there is a black swan to use to use those kind of analogies. Mm. I think you could gladly do uh, risk assessments, um, all all of that thing, and and I think it makes you cognizant of the if you ever are asking tricky questions and you just give the context of I'm not trying to be difficult, but why I'm asking this is wearing an Edward Bono black hat of the worst that can happen is what? And let's just think this through really, really, really slowly. I give advice that, you know, the more serious the consequences, the slower we're going to go um, mm. because we're just going to really, really take our time to think about it. So anyway, it's just, yeah, I, but I agree Timo. like I know, and I would, I don't want to keep speaking about it because it's, it's in the past, but it's just an experience you have. But you're right. We are here. What is it? March 2021. And, and KFC is, you know, brand health is at an all time high ever over the last 10 years. Our sales are doing really well. The team is in good spirits, you know, so I'm so proud of everyone. I'm really, really glad to hear. And um, I want to say a massive, massive thank you, Paula, for sharing so openly. It's been hugely fascinating. And I always love listening to you and learning from you. So thank you for your time and generosity and openness to share. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me.